You'll please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11 this morning. Before you get there, or as you're turning to there, a couple of things. One, just to, to make you aware and, and to pray, we've been talking about kingdom living, about what does it mean to live out our faith um, that we've been called to. And so uh, one of the concerns we have as a church is uh, our finance committee met this past week is we're behind about $48,000 in giving. Uh, for the year, and that's not to to do a shock value or to make anybody feel guilty. The idea was is we are to bring our prayers and our requests before God, and so we just ask that you would do those kingdom prayers that God would do a miracle. And we've seen that over the years. We've seen Him. Uh, Fifteen years ago, when I came here, we said uh, we need to get a, a van for our sister Linda Westfall. And um, how are we ever going to do that? It's going to take us so long to raise the money. And within a course of a month, God provided a van and, and paid it off. We've we've talked about um, doing our times where we've built houses for people in the neighborhoods. And we've said, man, we think this is the right thing to do. We just don't know how we're going to pay it. And God provides. With this building, we started the question of saying, how is God going to pay for this? And God puts us in a place where, again, we don't do it in our own power. He does it. And so that's what we want to pray for, is that God does continually brings us to our knees and continually shows us how he does the miracles. And so uh, please be praying for that. Secondly, I am dressed differently. It's not because I'm singing with the Korean church today, trying to fit in with their robes. Um, it's not that. It's because we're celebrating Reformation Sunday. And for those who don't understand what that is, it's where we're going back to our roots and trying to remember. And this is a time where the people of God went back to the truths of the commitment to the Word of God, okay, not to any person or any council. It goes back to giving the true gospel message that it's Jesus plus nothing, and then also the perspective of it's all to God's glory that we come this morning. It's to give Him all glory and none to ourselves. And so part of the tradition is that the pastors would wear these robes, and it's called a Genevan robe, and it's to make sure that you um, see nothing of the man, and you only hear the word of the Lord. So the only thing that is uncovered is my hands and my face. And so the idea is that you would hear the gospel message preached clearly and only that alone and not that of a person. So again, it's with that mindset that uh, we are here today celebrating the Reformation. And so uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3 because we're going to look at the conversion of Paul as well as uh, I want to give you some information on one of the people from the Reformation. And let me give by what he's known by. We're looking at Hugh Latimer. And uh, probably the majority of you have never heard of him before. Um, and that's okay. Um, he's known for these words probably more than anything. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall light this day such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So what happens next is Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley are therefore tied together at the stake outside of a college in Oxford, and they are burned at the stake on October 16, 1555. And they're burned at the stake because of their beliefs. Their beliefs that they weren't going to bow to any one pope or any one council or any priest. But they were going to go to the word of God and they were going to listen to the word of God above any man. They 
were burned for the understanding of the gospel, that it was Jesus alone who saves us. And they wanted to die to the glory of Christ. And so he gives these words that begin to expand and move through uh, England at the time and begins the Protestant Reformation. And so, again, they're living in, in hard times, obviously. They've, they've lived through the time of Henry VIII, who has the six wives and has three kids out of the six. And uh, they're all different. And so you have um, Edward VI, who was a good Protestant guy, but then you had Mary, and Mary, uh, who is known as Bloody Mary, comes to the throne at this point, and she's the one who signs off on their imprisonment and ultimately their death. And the question, at least the question for me is, given the same opportunity, would we go to death for the truths of the Scripture? See, we live in a day and age where it's very easy to get a divorce. If you're not happy, leave the person you're with. If you don't like this thing or that thing, just leave. If you don't like this, leave. We live where we have earphones all the time in our heads. We listen to what we want to listen to. We have everything bombarding us of things that we like. So why would, why would these two men find themselves in a position where they would be willing to go to the stake and die? And the perspective that I want us to get comes from Philippians 3 because there is a change that happens when we meet the living Christ. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And so be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, I ask that you would take all the distractions away from us. And Lord, there's a lot to take, there's a lot to do today. But Father, I ask that you would quiet our minds and our souls, that we might come and hear you speak today. May you speak to our hearts and to our heads. And Lord, may we truly grasp and understand what it means to fall deeper in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So here we have life before conversion. So we are looking at three different people. We're looking at Paul the Apostle. We're looking at Hugh Latimer, but then we're also looking at ourselves. So Paul had what we would say is he had the right pedigree. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, he begins by saying he had the right upbringing. He was born of the right parents who circumcised him. They did everything right. 
He was of the right nationality. He was of the right tribe. He was of the royal tribe. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he says, I had the right upbringing. I did everything right as I was being raised by my family. He also said, I had the right religion. He was a Pharisee. One of the few strict, um, did everything according to the law. He had passion and zeal, he said. So much so that he was persecuting the church. And only that he had the right morality. He was someone that found something in the righteousness of keeping the law. He was a, a book checker. He could sit down and go down and go, I check this, I check this, I check this. And so he thought he had arrived, but there was something missing. Now, if we look at Hugh Latimer, he was someone that we would look and say, well, he had the right values. He's someone that had a good family. He was born on a farm, so he came from a humble means. And he was set aside and, and uh, raised up in regards to, to having hard work. He was known as a preacher to the common folk. He was actually then given a good education. His parents, even though poor, found it enough money to send him to Cambridge. And he becomes a scholar at a very young age. And at that point, he finds religion. He becomes a, 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 a priest in the service. But he said, I was finding myself in the midst of legalism, living according to the law. So he said something was missing. Now, how does this apply to us? Yes, this is great for Paul. This is great for Hugh Latimer. But how does this apply to us? Well, most people today, if you were to ask them, are you a good person? The majority, if not everyone that you talk to, would say yes. And so what they've done is they've done studies on this. And so um, what's come up with is they said most Americans believe in a God because they are moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Now, what does that mean, moralistic? It means that for the most part, most people in America think that they are good. And if they're good, then God's going to allow them to get into heaven. But there is no such thing as good people. And that's not the requirement that God has. God has a requirement of perfection. So you're either perfect or you're not. Because being good, that that changes momentarily, right? Because it changes because we look at other people and go, well, I wasn't as bad as this. I wasn't as bad as Hitler. So of course I'm going to get in. Well, I wasn't as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm sure better than this person. So we think that there's a scale up there that somehow if, if I'm just on the better side, if I do more good things than bad things, then I'm going to be okay. And that's not the reality. It's not about being good. It's about being perfect. And Christ is the one who gives his perfection. He's the only one who got it right. And so Christ gives to us that perfection. And so we have this understanding that we can't just be moralistic and it can't be just about therapy. God does not just simply want you to be happy. You are not the center of the universe as much as you want to be, as much as I want to be. I want to dictate everything in my life, and so do you. But the reality is, is God says, I'm here not just to make you feel good about yourself, but I'm here to change you to look like my son, to change your thinking and to change your heart so that in all things to God be the glory. 
And so it begins to change our understanding about the purpose of who God is. And again, the last thing is we believe that he's just a deistic God, which means that he's a creator God, and that's okay. But the reality is we don't need him every day. Only You only need a God when things are going bad, when things get hard. And so the reality is, is that people are going around thinking, if I'm just a good person, if, I, if I'm being nice to other people, and I believe in that, that there is a God, but he's not a personal God, I can still get into heaven. And that's where a lot of people are today. And that's not the truth. And so Paul and Hugh Latimer and ourselves, we get to the place where we're saying, there has to be more. There's something missing in our lives. And so we're going to look at what it means to have life at conversion. So for Paul, if you go back to Acts chapter 7, and you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, because that's actually the conversion story of Paul. So you can turn to Acts chapter 9. But Acts chapter 7 is where um, Paul was actually kind of brought low. And what do I mean by that? Because Paul was there at the stoning of Stephen. It went so far as to say that um, Paul held the coats of the people who went to stone Stephen. And he approved of what they were doing. And he becomes so um, overwhelmed by this that he actually goes to the, to the leaders in the church and asks for them to give them letters so that he might go out and grab men and women, anybody who believes in Jesus, and bring them back to Jerusalem so they might take a trial. So that they too can be stoned to death. But here there's a different thing. As Paul saw Stephen being stoned, Paul gets angry. He covets what Stephen had because he didn't have it. Because what Stephen does when he is stoned is he looks at the people who are stoning him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. See, Stephen had the experience with Jesus Christ. So as you turn to Acts chapter 9, we get the conversion of Saul. And so Saul, it says right there in verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder, murder premeditated against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So you have this conversion experience, which is very different. Probably none of us in this room have had a similar experience of the Apostle Paul. None of us have had this blinding light as we've gone out to try to kill people in the church. But nonetheless, this is how God confronts Paul. He has an encounter with him on the Damascus road, and he has an encounter with the living Christ. And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now to Paul, who grew up in the church, would be saying, I'm not persecuting you. I'm taking the people out of the church. But Jesus makes the connection, as you have done to my church, so you have done to me, Paul. So you are persecuting me. And as he has this domestic um, road experience, then his pursuit 
now becomes very different. After he comes to Christ, after he has his personal encounter with Christ, his whole life changes. So he starts to, in just a, a few days, starts to go out and preach Jesus being the Son of God. Here he was killing people. Now everybody that was scared of Paul killing people, now he's coming to their churches. And so he's having this pursuit of coming to give God the glory. Now that doesn't happen for everybody. And for Hugh Latimer, there was an opportunity that happened where he received a confession. A private confession. So he was um, talking, and again, he had a hatred for the Reformed people. And so he was preaching against Philip Melanchthon, one of the, the cohorts of the big names of the Reformation. And so he's having this hatred of him, and he's preaching this sermon. And so what happens is there was one man, and he's known as the Little Thomas Blindly. Little Thomas Blindling, you probably, again, have never heard of this man. I never heard of him until this time. But Thomas was there, and so Thomas asked, Father, can I have a private confession with you? At which point, um, Hugh Latimer says, sure, come into my study, and you can come in, and we'll have a time of confession. Well, what happens is during this confession, Thomas begins to preach the gospel, and he says, this is what I read in Scripture, and this is how I've understood Scripture to be. And so here I find myself listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, gave his life as a ransom for me, died upon the cross as my payment, and then gives to me his righteousness. So I don't need to come in and confess to you anymore. Here's my problem. At which point, Hugh Latimer starts to give up everything in the Catholic Church. He gives a statement that I forsook the school doctors and such fooleries because he had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. Because what couldn't happen by the law happened in Jesus. And so this priest is converted in the midst of a confession. And so now his pursuit becomes a single-minded allegiance to Jesus and the glory of God. And he begins to preach truth where there wasn't truth. So the question then comes to us, have you had an encounter with the living God? See, we're all called, and for those who remember, if you've been here for a number of weeks, we're all called to be faithful heralds, which means we're not making anything up. We don't have to be scared. We're just simply telling Jesus' story. Worst case scenario, if someone asks you about the gospel message, give to them the Apostles' Creed. The gospel story is true, and, and it can be found in there. And it's a simple story. You've already heard it many, many more times today. Jesus lived a perfect life that you could never live. And when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins that you could never pay for. And when he was resurrected, he gave to you his righteousness, his perfection that you could never earn. It's as simple as that. And yet the reality is you'll never, ever figure it out. Never. I, I tell you this and I give this example because I, I think it's true. It's, it's one of these things where, again, there are a lot of people in this room that I love, that I would do lots of things for, that I would give money to, that I would, if you needed a vehicle, I would give you a vehicle. Maybe not the best vehicle, but you'd get the leftover vehicle. And I would do lots of things for you. But what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't give you my child. And so for the God, the God, to give his son for sinners... I don't begin to grasp and understand that kind of love. But that's what he gives to us. 
He allows us to have an encounter with the living Jesus. And so what that does is it means that in that encounter, we should have now a new pursuit. Our world should change. We should become single-minded of saying, I, I, I can't just have Jesus as my Savior, but he's got to be Lord. And again, that, that's a struggle for a lot of people. And again, for me, growing up in a Baptist church, you know, I, I thought everything that I, all I had to do was say the prayer. Until I went to church and then they said, well, you know, you got to go down the aisle or raise your hand or do whatever. And so I did that multiple times and I thought, I'm in. I'm in. No, it's not a magic prayer. It's not going down the aisle. It's, it's where our lives are so changed. We become so enamored with the gospel, so enamored with Jesus that everything changes. And so it becomes not just our Savior, but also our Lord. And we want to give him all glory and honor and all things. And so you have your life before conversion, you have your life at conversion, but what's life after conversion? Well, according to the scripture, it's not all that pretty sometimes. Because the first thing that Paul says in the scripture after he finds Christ is he says, now there's going to be new persecution. Well, that's exactly what you want to hear, right? You're going to suffer. And there will be suffering. And again, it might not be the same as what Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley received. You might not ever be burned at the stake. And I hope that's true. But I definitely didn't think our world was going to change as much as it has in my lifetime. And who's to say that our children or our grandchildren are not the ones who will be imprisoned or put to death because they believe in Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Savior of the book of the Bible that we hold true See, but suffering still will come because, listen, people hate Jesus. Again, we live in a day and an age where it's okay to be spiritual. Believe what you want to believe. Be nice to people. But that's not the gospel. Jesus says very clearly that the world hates him, and so he's going to hate us. And so we need to be ready that persecution will come in one form or another. And so the question does become for us, will we stand? Will we stand for the truth? Or do we buckle? And so the reality is, is that we, we have suffering is coming, but listen, we have the greatest thing. We have hope because this world is not the end. We only are here part time. This is not our home. It's what Paul said in Philippians one that Jim read to us to live as Christ, but to die is gain. So all of this means nothing. Your home means nothing. Your Everything that you hold in your possessions mean nothing. You can't take it with you. So why do we hold so dearly to this world? I think some of us because we're scared. But we have to give our trust and our hope to be found in Christ. And how do we do that? We get a new power. And it says that this comes through the Holy Spirit. See, God is with us all the time. He's not with you part-time. He's not here with you only on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, he's not with you. If you are a Christian, he is with you all the time. And he's there as we learn, he's the umpire. He's slain our sin. He's drawn us back to Christ. He's always driving us back to the truth of the gospel. Always drawing us back to the glory of God. And he says he does this because it has, listen, the power of the resurrection. And again, we don't grasp and understand, but we have the same spirit and the same power that Jesus Christ had when he walked out of the tomb. You have the same spirit. 
You have that same power. And it's the power that Jesus commands at the right hand of God the Father. And remember, Jesus, by his very words, creates planets. And so don't think there's anything outside of his power, but also don't think that you are not loved because he knows you by name. And he cares for you. And so you have Jesus coming and giving to you as the Spirit so that we might stand strong when temptations and suffering comes in our lives. But then he also says there's something else that changes too. Our priority changes. Verses 6 through 8 talks about rubbish. And the way if you look up in the Greek word, it's, it's actually a nasty term. They just, they're trying to clean it up in English. Okay, They're saying it's like filthy dung. So Paul says everything that I got in this world... Everything that I got, the privilege, the prestige, the money, a Hebrew above Hebrews, everything that he had, he counted as dung. It's not worth anything. It's to be thrown out because Jesus really became his whole world. And when Jesus becomes your whole world, nothing else matters. And Jesus is the thing that is everything. So the reality of the statement, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel. And that's why Paul and Hugh Latimer and countless thousands of others have died so that we might be here in this building today with the word of God held in your hands. You hold the word of God in your hands. That's incredible. And you serve the God who spoke all of creation into being. But he cares about you so intimately that he died for you by name. And he tells you, come. But Jesus, I don't have anything to bring. You don't need anything. I've paid it all. But Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Just come. Just come as you are. That's the encouragement this morning. That's the encouragement that we're going to find at the Lord's Supper. So let's pray as we prepare ourselves. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would truly bring a living encounter with us this morning. Lord, that we would grasp and understand that there is nothing, nothing in the law, nothing in church, nothing in religion, but it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Father, truly allow no one to leave this morning without having a discussion with you or a discussion with someone else about what it means to have a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who suffered and died and gave his life as a ransom so that we might live with him forevermore. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.